Hello there. Thanks for joining tonight. And uh, my name is Josh. And the next in person will be February 6th, Williamsburg, Grand Street Healing. So if you're around New York, stop by then. Uh, all of my work is supported by your donation. I don't charge for anything I do. So um, everything, just being able to do these talks is supported by you. So if you feel in any way that this benefits you and you feel like supporting my work, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC, and the PayPal and the Patreon are on the dharmapunksnyc.com website. So thanks for your support so that I can continue doing this and if you ever want to reach me write dpxnyc at gmail.com tonight we're talking about unreliable and or abusive relationships so uh in behavioral psychology there's a conditioning called intermittent reinforcement and i'm going to be saying that a lot and it's really important to understand how key intermittent reinforcement is to the allure of unreliable and unfulfilling relationships. What's called positive reinforcement, a desirable behavior, say when a dog performs a trick, the owner of the dog will each time provide a reward, you know, a treat, to reinforce the behavior and the rewards increase the likelihood that a behavior will be repeated. As a child, if you want a child to do its homework, you might offer a reward afterwards. They can watch, I don't know, used to in my case, after I did my homework, my parents would allow me to watch an hour of TV when I was a kid. Positive reinforcement, predictably, you get a positive reward after you do a desirable behavior. But in intermittent reinforcement, a reward isn't received each time a desirable behavior. In fact, the reward only rarely, sporadically, is produced. And those times that the reward is produced are at very random intervals. So it's in no way predictable. Intermittent reinforcement are more powerful than positive reinforcement. Unpredictability produces all kinds of addictive biochemical responses. It produces suspense and attention. And so when someone only receives rewards infrequently, it actually results in the animal or human performing more desirable behaviors than if they regularly got predictable rewards. So the more unpredictable someone receives attention or kindness, the more they will act trying to get attention and kindness. So rats, for example, will press levers for food more frequently when they don't know if pressing the lever will produce a food pellet. If every time the rat pressed the lever, a food pellet arrived, the rat will press it far less frequently. Classic examples with human behavior, 
slot machines, gamblers sporadically, infrequently, 2% of the time to 10% of the time, will get a small payoff. And this small payoff keeps them addicted and obscures the fact that overall they're losing money. In social media, people will post, but many posts will be ignored or not receive anywhere near the amount of attention one is seeking. Only once in a while will a post for inscrutable reasons suddenly get attention. But this keeps individuals addicted to social media. Individuals will stay in relationships despite neglect, criticism, or abuse if they are sporadically receiving unpredictable attention or small acts of kindness or gifting. Intermittent reinforcement produces the same biochemical addictive processes as bargain shopping. It's the dopamine reward system of the ventral tegmental region of the striatum. When a reward is unpredictable, it starts sending more and more bursts of dopamine, focusing attention, and to the basal ganglia will initiate automatic behaviors. These bursts of dopamine occur more frequently than if the rewards were happening all the time. In romantic relationships, the biochemical foundations are far more powerful than with bargain shopping because you don't only have the dopamine, you also have the presence of serotonin and eventually oxytocin gets involved and adrenaline or acetylcholine, which is deeply involved in bonding behaviors. But let's go even further. If a relationship often features neglect or abuse or criticism or shaming and cortisol is added to the mix, then this now becomes an even more addictive spiral because the discrepancy between the cortisol and the stress and then suddenly the unpredictable lifts uh, when the love returns. Stress responses accruing from abuse and neglect, abandonment, or what have you, activate the HPI axis of the brain, which deactivates the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which considers the long-term ramifications of actions and allows us to be objective about our conditions. So the more there's sporadic bursts of stress, then sporadic reward, then more stress, the individual is disoriented. They're no longer objective, and they keep on being fixated by getting the small acts of kindness. So, over time, hypervigilance can be associated with attachment. Love begins to be associated with heightened states of suspense, and people with anxious attachment are prone to looking constantly for the feeling of fireworks and electricity. Fireworks and electricity and magic or whatever are really descriptions of suspense, unpredictability, unreliability. People who are in secure relationships, 
They associate love with feelings of being at home and safe and secure in their body. The addictive nature of harmful relationships can result in adults who spend their entire lifetimes chasing after love from unsuitable partners because they've become addicted to the feeling of hypervigilance, drama, suspense. They're like the bargain shopper hunting amidst the piles of useless clothes at a thrift store looking for one good piece. Think of a child who lives with a borderline or narcissistic parent who frequently, more often than not, belittles the child, neglects the child, shames the child, but then unpredictably uh, rewards the child with small acts of kindness or lavish gifts or praise. Suddenly the parent that's belittling and critical tells the child, you're my favorite. You're the most lovable. So the child will be more attentive to that parent than a safe parent because they don't know when the reward will accrue. So that keeps them addictively fixated. When an insecure child reaches adulthood, the addictive processes underpinning our earliest attachments are still in place and are tragically easily activated by those with avoidant or narcissistic personality disorders. Classic examples of unreliable, unsuitable, harmful relationships, also trauma bonding, is when a very dependent or anxious person meets a dismissive, avoidant individual in the beginning, the dismissive acts incongruently with their normal behaviors. They'll love bomb the anxious partner. They'll shower them with compliments, praise their beauty, their talent, their specialness. The anxious partner now feels like they're in a honeymoon state and agrees to have sex and celebrates the bond and becomes fully attached. At this point, the avoidant pulls back and either disappears or becomes no longer appreciative or complimentary, but becomes harshly critical and undermines the anxious partner's uh, friends, undermines their appearance, undermines their intelligence, criticizes everything about them. And this belittling is interspersed with gaslighting where uh, when the anxious person says, why have you changed or why are you doing this? The anxious, the avoidant partner will deny doing anything, will deny what they've said, will tell them that uh, they're just being uh, loving by pointing out all the flaws of their partner. And the more the gaslighting, the more the sudden shifts in behavior, the anxious person's entire point of view begins to be destabilized. They start internalizing the criticisms of the dismissive, uh, abusive partner. And just when the anxious person has finally hit bottom and the abuse or neglect or abandonment or shaming or criticism is too much, um, and the, the anxious person starts to build up the strength 
to finally end the relationship, that's when, of course, the dismissive partner returns with gifts, attention, dinner, romance, small acts of kindness, reactivating the oxytocin, the dopamine, the serotonin. And once again, the anxious person feels back in the honeymoon and is filled with delusion that, oh, I can fix and change my partner. Not seeing that this pattern, this unreliable pattern actually defines who their partner is. So anxious or abused individuals will work harder for attention, seeking constantly a return to the honeymoon period of a relationship where they were at first bathed with love and kindness. And it's the lack of consistency that hijacks their reward systems and keeps them fixated. Now, if that's not insidious enough, another dispiriting quality of intermittent reinforcement is that it makes the search or the seeking for attention resistant to extinction, no matter how little attention or praise exists to the point of people will continue to seek uh, the attention of a partner who completely stops being kind or rewarding. Dogs will long continue to perform tricks even when their trainers have entirely stopped rewarding them. A business owner who overworks their employees but then sporadically gifts them with with large bonuses to keep them from seeking other jobs or quitting. Even when that boss stops providing the bonuses altogether, very often the employees will stay with the firm for far longer than they should because they keep expecting a return of the rewards. So this can happen in... Uh, abusive relationships where long after any small acts of kindness are present, individuals will still hold the memory of the honeymoon phase or the positive states and will still return again and again to the trauma bond for trying to get a return to that beatific early state that no longer exists at all. Now, conversationally, some people use the term trauma bonding to mean when partners share or disclose their traumatic experiences. Like if two people who went through horrific events in childhood get in a relationship and just share about those traumas and bond over it, but that's not really what trauma bonding is. Some people also refer to trauma bonding when two people go through intense, risky experiences together, survive a car accident or uh, something like that, that they bond over that experience. And that's fine colloquially, but the term really refers to attachments where one partner is unreliable, uh, unpredictable, at times abusive, other times kind, and that behavior keeps their their other partner addicted and continuously seeking attachment. 
Trauma bonds look to outsiders as bewildering. Why keep going back? Why do they keep staying in it? Can't they see how how terrible their situation is? But once again, the unpredictability of the response keeps them disoriented. It switches off the regions of the brain that see objectively the in frequent bouts of kindness create an illusion in the anxious partner that their abuser can be fixed or healed. And that's another component. They keep, they hold out this fantasy that they are the ones that can actually heal the person that's been abandoning, neglecting, or abusing them. What generally happens when I work with people who've been through these types of experiences is that when they finally leave these types of relationships and they're dating again, they often meet people who are secure and emotionally available and predictable. But they find such individuals boring because they don't elicit those old addictive states that they call magic or fireworks in them, they feel that there's no spark, that there's something, in quotes, missing, which is kind of, to say the least, tragic, that they find safety so uninspiring, uh, that it doesn't, you know, that they only can associate love and attachment with adrenaline and cortisol and unpredictable spurts of dopamine. For all of the reasons I've listed, it's essential for anyone who's got any degree of anxious or disorganized attachment to go into new relationships extremely slowly with a very slow, predictable pacing. At first, meeting no more than once a week, letting go of any individual who cannot commit to a predictable schedule. This is essential because av avoidant, dismissive, narcissistic people will try to rush in, try to see the person really frequently. And if you're anxious and you've had a history of being in harmful relationships, um, it's essential to make sure that the partner can live by, any partner can live by a predictable, reliable schedule can prioritize you and will prioritize you and not suddenly disappear or change schedules and all that. Um, it's important to note the emotional responses that you get when you disclose how you feel. Um, avoidant individuals cannot sit very well with negative emotions. They keep trying to change their partner's emotions to positive. They don't like to deal with anything that's difficult or challenging. So it's important at least once every connection to just talk about something that's difficult. It doesn't have to be from your past. It just can be from recent times to just note how well the person can validate, empathize, and soothe 
rather than try to get rid of or, you know, just immediately try to fix or solve the issue to make it go away. It's important when an anxious individual starts to connect with people, whether they're new friends or romantic partners, to stay relaxed, sit back, and to not go into the addictive uh, constantly trying to get attention. It's only by staying physically relaxed that our old friend, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which can really see what's happening objectively, can think of our long-term goals and remember the processes that keep us safe, can stay active. The moment we fall into a kind of uh, physically tense stress response, we we no longer we go into automatic behaviors. Um, human behavior is largely driven by images and emotions, not by thinking. So, if we associate an avoidant person that we've been in a relationship with, and we associate them with the initial feelings of love and the beginning of the relationship when everything was great, people will go back again and again and again, despite the fact that that avoidant person has long stopped predictably reaching out, connecting, validating. So it's important to begin to associate partners that are or friends that are uh, unpredictable, associate them with the feeling of being abandoned, not with the that, those little acts of kindness, but really associate them with a feeling of what the dominant part of the relationship uh, inspires. If, you know, people will go back to people to others that at the beginning gave them love and attention, despite the fact that that love and attention is long since faded, they'll keep fixating and reaching out. It's only when we change the affect that we associate those people with that we stop that cycle. And finally, um, to prepare someone who's been in harmful relationships to being in a healthy relationship, we have to prime the attachment center, the orbital frontal, reassociating attachment with no longer searching, no longer those feelings of excitement, drama, unpredictability, suspense. We want to reassociate love with feelings of safety and kindness and reassurance and reliability. It's an entirely different feeling. And we want to make that experience of safety and kindness and reassurance and you know reliability, predictability, alluring enough that it can activate enough of our reward system that we'll actually begin to respond to the attention that secure people offer. So tonight's meditation is going to be based on uh, the work of um, some Buddhists in the attachment field. And uh, it's a meditation where we visualize a secure, safe uh, relationship in the future 
where our needs are met. And we're going to begin to see what that feels like. And we're going to spread the positive feelings throughout the body so that it feels really rewarding. And so that when we meet people, we'll start chasing after the feeling of security rather than the feeling of unreliability. So that's tonight's talk. I hope that something about the uh, the addictive nature of, of unreliable uh, attachments was of interest. Closing your eyes. Let's take a nice full breath in. And then breathing out slowly. And with another full in-breath, lifting your shoulders, squeezing the muscles in your face, tightening the legs and the buttocks and the belly. And then as you breathe out, relax everything. Relax the face, release the jaw, allow your shoulders to collapse away from your ears. And slightly pull back to open up the chest, allow your legs and buttocks to sink into the chair or cushion, or if you're lying on the ground, just feel yourself sinking into a yoga mat. Or... And soften your belly. And just allow this really soft belly to receive each inhalation. So when you breathe in, imagine your belly expanding with the breath, pulling in the breath, and then as you breathe out, you're not clenching, you're just releasing the belly back to its most comfortable position. So when you're breathing in, the belly is bloated and distended, and when you're breathing out, it's returning back to the most relaxed, soft state. And so the practice is, at first is just to stay with the breath, just the breathing into the belly. And just every time your attention wanders, just bring it back to the belly, receiving the in-breath by expanding and then releasing the out-breath slowly. And if it's hard to stay with the breath, just count. So breathe, when you breathe in and your belly expands, think one. And when you breathe out, your belly relaxes, think two. And then think three with the next in-breath. Four with the next out-breath. And then when you reach five, start counting back down. So the practice is to count from one to five, up and down. The odd numbers always on the in-breath.
Every time a thought lures you away, just relax, use the breath to return to the body. And at this point, um, if you'd like, we can add on into our awareness, not only sensations in other parts of the body that aren't related to the breath, but also any feelings. If you notice you're suddenly becoming anxious or tired or fidgety, just notice. And as well as sounds, just allowing sounds to become part of the awareness so that we're staying present by paying attention to the movement of the breath and the body, random sensations in the body, feelings and sounds arising and passing.
So at this point, if you'd like to move on to the visualization practices. First, we're just going to take a brief period to practice reassociating individuals who aren't emotionally available, reliably kind, individuals who we still, for some reason, go back to return and fail to set boundaries or protect ourselves. If there's any such individual in your life, bring them to We'll first bring to mind an image of a situation that most defines that relationship, not the positive, but the most common experience of disappointment or being let down. The feeling of, uh, once again, getting our hopes up and then being dashed. Feel it in the tightness of the belly or the hollowness of the chest. Just really bringing to mind an image of, that really defines what the bulk of this relationship produces. And when you really feel a sense of frustration or sadness, then hold in mind an image of this person who constantly produces the feeling of unmet needs and just link their face with the affects that they produce. Just really link it. This involves no anger. It's simply changing what we associate them with. No longer the initial hopes of attention, but the real experience of being let down. Just really link this person with the unpleasant, dispirited frustration and just know that this is the outcome, this feeling is the outcome of reaching out to this person. Just linking the two. So release the image, we'd like to move on to a happier practice. So at this point, I'd invite you to imagine a future scene when you are in a friendship or romantic relationship that is really 
rewarding, reliable, kind. So let's try to be specific and visualize some of the day-to-day elements of intimacy so that we can really feel what intimacy is like. So imagine a partner or a friend who helps you feel safe and protected. You don't have to visualize them, but just what would it be like to be in some kind of bond where you could reach out and know that other person would come and pay attention and either hold or soothe or be with you whenever life gets difficult. If you can bring to mind times where you felt truly seen and understood, comforted, soothed, reassured. Or if there's somebody in your life that you associate with any of those qualities, just try to conjure in your body what it feels like when somebody cares and takes the time to help you settle after a difficult experience, what it feels like to be cared about. Very often a feeling of the shoulders relaxing and the chest becoming less tight, everything softening. And if it helps to put a heart a hand on your heart center, do so just to feel the sense of warmth in the heart center when we feel connection. Imagine a situation where you're relaxed and you sense your partner is nearby, not too close that you feel in any way claustrophobic, but not so far away that they couldn't hear or respond. Imagine feeling safe and relaxed if they connected, spoke, or got close to you. See if you can imagine an ideal being for some a Buddha-like figure or a divine feminine figure. 
associated with feelings of intimacy, empathy, and expressed delight, someone who delights in you. Just what would that feel like in your body? If it helps, just visualize in your mind someone associated with, or someone real or imaginary associated with kindness, just looking at you with appreciation and try to find some warmth in your heart center and spread that feeling through your body the feeling of being safe, the feeling of being in the gaze of someone who reliably cares, and really get to know that feeling. <laughs> 